Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. If you're joining us online, thank you. And if you're joining us online, we're going to be celebrating communion today. So if you want to go get your elements ready, you won't be caught unaware. <clears throat> so when I was in college, back a long time ago, there, used, there was a poster that would come out in January, earn $10,000 this summer. Now, you need to go back when I was in college, I paid $4 per semester hour for tuition. So do the math there. If you had 16 hours, I was paying 64 bucks for tuition. There was all that to say you could do college for room, board, and tuition for three to $4,000 a year. So $10,000 was, wow, I could pay for college and I could maybe buy a car or something like that. But then you'd go to the informational meeting and you'd find out, oh, uh, the expectation is you'll knock on doors 10 hours a day, six days a week. And a lot of students thought, I'm just going to take a big step back from that. I'm going to find some other job, some other place, because what's required is more than I want to put forth. Well, Jesus makes promises not that are contingent, but that are steadfast, certain, but like those people for the book company, He has some expectations of us too. If we're going to embrace all He has for us, He has some things He wants us to do, know, and follow through on. And I want to talk about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to go start in verse 9 and go through verse 20 and wrestle with this question, what are Jesus' expectations of us? What are Jesus' expectations of us? Now, let me just kind of set the stage where we've been. We opened Revelation last week, noticing it's really three types of genres, if you will. It's an apocalypse. It's a vision. And what we decided is God is using symbols, for sake of analogy, much like a somebody who's a political commentator would use a political cartoon. The, the pictures, they stick more than just words. But these symbols, they weren't for us to speculate about the future and what about and when would Jesus come back and when do we get out. No, they were a prophetic word. And we understand prophecy, though it tells the future, more than not speaks to the, the present. And it was speaking to the, the present of seven churches who were going through a time of persecution and tribulation. Though the persecution wasn't empire-wide, it was, it was hit and miss. But this prophecy to these churches, this instruction, was communicated in the form of a letter. This is Pastor John shepherding seven churches. And they're living in a time when people believed that Rome was chosen by God. The emperor was a mediator of the blessings of the God, gods. Therefore, Rome demanded that they be worshipped. The emperor be demanded that he be treated as a savior. And so six of the seven cities that we'll see had a temple for emperor worship. Five of those cities had subsidized priesthood. In other words, the government was paying maybe like a pastor, but they were paying the people to lead them in worship of the emperor. And so John is speaking into that, and he opened with some instructions. But in verse 9, he's going to begin to relate the vision that God has given him. 
So here's how we start in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. So John is experiencing this tribulation, this persecution. It's not academic. He's not watching it on TV. He's in the midst of it. How so? I, John, middle of the verse, was on the island called Patmos. What you doing there, John? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's living in exile. He's been banished. Because of his faith, you go to this desolate island, and that's where you will live out your life. Most scholars think the only thing that kept John from being uh, executed was his age. They felt sorry for him. So, so John is going to write this. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's on the island by himself. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Here is our audience for the book of Revelation. Seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum. We're going to look at these three churches today. Next week, we'll look at to Thyatira and to Sardis, two more of the churches. And the following, we'll look at Philadelphia and Laodicea. So, what's John going to communicate? Starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So here we go with the symbols from the book of Zechariah. We understand, and be confirmed in verse 20, that seven lampstands represent seven churches. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Again, much of this vision, much of the symbolism is going to come from the book of Daniel, which was a prophetic book in the Old Testament. Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Son of man was uh, an eternal figure that nobody quite had a handle on and until Jesus came and he said, I'm the son of man. And he quoted the book of Daniel. You'll see me coming on the clouds. Well, that's part of this vision. This son of man is clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. This is clothing of royalty of king, of a king. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, indicative of the divine. And his eyes were like a, a flame of fire. He sees everything. He sees everything. His feet were like burnished bronze. That's a picture of stability when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many water, waters, powerful. We talked about John 19 when they came to arrest Jesus. Jesus said, who are you looking for? You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And just that statement knocked people over. A powerful voice. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And we're going to understand these seven stars are symbols for seven angels, one for each church that watches over. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, that's important because the sword was the, the instrument of judgment, and, and the understanding was Rome brought judgment. But Jesus is going to say, no, 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 no. The final judgment, it, it, it comes with me. I, I speak it, and it's done. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. God is glorious in the it's light which destroys darkness, which is a metaphor for all that's evil. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That is in line with Ezekiel and in line with Isaiah, Old Testament prophets. When they got a vision of God, it laid them out. Of course it would. God in his majesty, 
And he placed his right hand on me and saying, do not be afraid. Well, that's God's number one command. Do not be afraid. Why? He says, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have come back from the dead. And I, not, not Rome, I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels and the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, as God addresses each one of these churches and their specific circumstances and the, the tribulation they're going to go through, He's going to present a picture of Himself from these opening verses, chapters 1, 12 through 20. And what He's saying to these churches is, yeah, you're going to suffer, but don't look to be getting out. I don't have an out plan for you. What I do have, though, is the sufficiency of me. I am enough. And He will present Himself as more than enough when they and we face suffering. So the first church he addresses is Ephesus. Ephesus is the most prominent of the churches. It's about 50 miles from the island of Patmos. It's very entrenched in emperor worship, and there are shrines to other gods all around the city. We won't turn there, but in Acts 19, the companions of the apostle Paul are beat up why? Because they led the people away from worshiping Artemis to worshiping the Lord Jesus. And the silversmiths who are making the little idols to Artemis, they're, they're down on their business. So they start a chant, great is Artemis of Ephesus. This is a very religious, and I use that in the worst sense, city. So here's what he says to the angel of the church at Ephesus. The one who holds the seven stars. Remember the stars are the angels of the given to each church, angels in his right hand, and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, he's drawing from chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 and verse 16. He says this, I know your deeds and your toll, toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. They've done some things well. They've wrestled with what people who claim to be God. And didn't Jesus tell us to do that in the Sermon on the Mount? You're always evaluating. You're always considering. And you found some people to be false in their teaching. And, verse 3, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. That's been hard. Following, and, and you have stayed true. You haven't grown weary. Good report so far. However, verse 4 starts the word but, and that's, that's a transition. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Remember, lampstands figure for church. I, you will cease to exist as a church unless you repent. Repent is turn, 180 degrees. Look, you don't, you don't value me. You don't treasure me like you want. You're growing cold. And if that love goes, everything else will follow. 
You need to rekindle that passion that was once for me. Back to verse 6. There's some things you're doing well. Yet, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Almost certainly false teachers. And we're going to find out there's a church at Pergamum that, that buys into their teaching. They've said no. So here's what he says. He who has ear and ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Notice that word. I'm not taking it away. It's there. I'm expecting you to overcome. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As this vision plays out through the chapters, in the end, especially 17, 18, 19, 20, God will deconstruct everything that stands in His way, and He will bring His kingdom back. And we start seeing it in 20 and 21, chapters 22. One point He says, every tear, every sorrow, every pain, Revelation 21, death will be done away with. Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus, you overcome the suffering, you will join me in that talk of the end is so that people would be faithful in the now. So we want to step back. Jesus is speaking a prophetic word to the church at Ephesus, but I would also say to us. And I think the question worth asking is, how's your love for Jesus? Is it where it was or has it grown cold? See, we're talking about overcoming. We're talking about enduring. When we're in love with Christ, that empowers us to live that way. You know, last week I talked about enduring, and it's a, much, it's a human example, so it falls short. But I swam in high school, and that meant I got up at 6 o'clock. And this lot of first three years were in Chicago when it was cold. All the other high school students are swimming. We get in the cold pool at 7, 7.15, and swim until 8.30 so we can be in class at 9, do it again in the afternoon. Do you know how many practices I missed in high school swimming? Zero. You guys, I didn't even think about missing a practice. You know why? My friends were there. Though it was hard, practice was actually fun. And I loved my coach. He was a surrogate dad to me. I wouldn't think about missing, even though you had to get up, even though it was cold, yeah, it's cold in there, and you get in the warm locker room, then you get in the cold water. Yeah. I wouldn't miss it. Why? Because of relationship. Hey, it, at some point, if you get serious about following Jesus, it's going to get hard. You're going to have to overcome. We need to be in love with Jesus. And so the word that Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus, he speaks to us. From here, we go to the church of Smyrna. Now, there's seven churches that will be introduced in this letter, too. Get a positive view. One of them is the church at Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this. That's a drawing from chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. That Jesus is the beginning and the end and he has come back to life. Why is he saying that? Because they are going to face death themselves. And if you can't face death unless you know the one to whom you're remaining true has overcome. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. We're speculating here. But we talked about last week that there were food festivals where food was offered to the emperor, but there were also festivals in which the food was offered to the patron god of the local 
trade guild. So maybe you're a woodworker, maybe you work with metal, maybe you work with, I don't know what you work with. But we're getting together and because we've been blessed and we're going to have our monthly thing where, and, and I didn't see you. And I didn't see you last month. And I, I expect to see, well, I can't go to that. Well, why can't you go to that? I can't do that. Well, then I don't know that you can be a part of our guild. And you just lost the ability to work. And so you're poor, but materially poor, but spiritually rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Look, the Jews were granted religious liberty by the Roman Empire. As long as they didn't create too much of a ruckus, they could worship. In fact, Luke 7, you'll remember there was a centurion who wanted Jesus to heal his daughter, and, and the, the religious leader said, he built our synagogue. That was very, very typical in that time, the Roman Empire, for the Romans built the synagogue. They were pro-Jews as long as they didn't create a ruckus. But these Jews are saying, whoa, we don't want to lose this status. And, and these Jesus people, they're getting pretty serious. So they're pointing, hey, Roman government, those people are. And so other spiritual, term in quotes, people have turned against them. And John says they're really not a Satan, a synagogue of Jews. They're a synagogue of Satan. He has more to say to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Don't say, I'm going to get you out because you're going to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. I don't think the 10 days is literal. I think it's a figurative. It probably refers back to Daniel, verses 1, 12 to 15, when Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego challenged the king's edict on food and it was for 10 days. But the point is, it's a short time of suffering. But the, the connection is, you're challenging culture. You're challenging the prevailing thoughts. Be faithful until death. Now, do you understand why Jesus said what he did at the beginning? I'm the first and the last. I'm the king of Hades, over Hades. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. In Smyrna, it's very typical to award crowns after death. Posthumously, I think is the way it's pronounced. Jesus said, I'm, I'm following that. You, you die and, and you get crowns of life. Yeah, I read a while ago about a, a church in Egypt that was uh, attacked and Christians were killed. Here's what was interesting to me about the Egyptians. Though they were sad, they were celebrating the faithfulness of these people. Why on earth would you do that? Because you take the book of Revelation seriously. And that the people who stand for Jesus to the point of death will be honored, will be redeemed. They're taking the word seriously. So, Jesus says, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, there's our word again, overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. Again, Revelation will run to the end of time. And in Revelation 20, they said there will be a second judgment. And those who are not in Jesus for the second time will be judged and cast into eternity. He said, you, if you remain faithful, you will overcome that second death. So as we, we want to learn. This is a word spoken to the church of Smyrna, but it's a word spoken to us. Your faith, your allegiance to Jesus may cost you on the job. It may cost you a promotion. It may cost you a job. You don't buy the theory of evolution. You may not get into graduate school. 
is Jesus enough? You get serious about your faith and you're not going to participate in this and you're not going to do that. Other Christians term intentionally in quotes. They say, you know, you're a little radical. You're a little, you're getting into this too much. You may be ostracized by others because you are just going, you are doing too, you are going too far in this. So my freshman year in college, I get involved in the dorm Bible study and in February of that year I come to faith. And that summer I'm going to be home living with my parents and um, be working lifeguard right around the corner. And I come home, and I am reading my Bible. Now, my parents have taken me to church every week, have taken me to religious education classes, and they are freaked out. Capital F, freaked out. So my mom, within the month, has me up to this religious official, and we have this discussion, and, and I, I won't get all, but, but I remember saying to the man, should I read my Bible every day? And I remember his answer. This is summer 1979. I remember it, quote, unquote. Yes, but don't take it too seriously. Don't go too far in this. That's coming. If you're going to follow these other Christians, unquote, are going to find you a little whacked, a little nutty. One more church to the church at Pergamum, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Again, this is chapter 1, verse 16. I hold the final word of judgment. Not Rome. Remember, the sharp two-edged sword, that's kind of who has the power of the sword, who has authority. No, I, I do. I just speak it. I speak it, and judgment happens. He says, I know where you dwell. Where? Where, where Satan's throne is. Why does he say that? Of all the seven churches, Pergamum, without a question, not probably, without question, has the greatest ties to Rome. Early when the empire was expanding, they, they fought with the Roman Empire against other Mediterranean kings and helped it expand. So, so there, there's a tightness there. Not only do they have a local temple for emperor worship, but they have a provincial one, one for the province. So, so you dwell where Satan is. And I think that's a warning to them. Don't love Rome to the exclusion of Jesus. And so everything that we would hold, remember God uses, or Satan uses the city-state to pull our allegiance away. And for those who love our country, that's great. But remember, America and the American dream are not synonymous with Jesus. We need to weigh those. Be careful that we're not compromising Jesus as we give our allegiance to a city-state. He says, and you hold fast my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Somebody dies for their faith. But I have a few things against you because you have, there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam was an Old Testament prophet. This is a metaphor, probably not the real name. What did Balaam do? He kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So basically, for the sake of money, Balaam tried to lead Israel into immorality and idolatry. Here's what's going on. This prophet is teaching people to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Again, food sacrificed to the gods, food sacrificed to the emperor, food sacrificed to the local god of the trade guild was common. And are you going to be there? And you're not there? Why, why aren't you there? You can't, what, what, you, I view you as, un, you can't participate in the, you're going to make the gods mad. You're going to upset our God. 
and acts of immorality. The call was to be intimate with the gods. At times, the temple priest or priestess was a surrogate. You go be intimate with that priest or priestess, it's as if you're intimate with God. For somebody who's bent towards immorality, you've just been given a reason. So, you have some, verse 15, who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember we talked about them? Ephesus rejected that. They're buying it. Here's what he says. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly and will make war against you with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to pronounce judgment, is what he's saying. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, there's our word again, third time. To him I will give some hidden manna. Again, a metaphor of the Old Testament. Israel comes out of Egypt. They're going to the promised land. How are we going to eat? God said, I'll provide for you. This is, God says, I'll supernaturally provide for you. And I will give him a white stone. Now, scholars spend a lot of ink on this. I think the best explanation is a white stone is a ticket into heaven, white being symbolic of purity, and a new name written on the stone. Now, when you gave a name to somebody in that time, it was a, it was a commitment of intimacy. A new name is a new status. So you're giving intimacy with God, and that's giving you a new status. A new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. No one understands this intimacy until you've experienced it, until you've received it. So we're stepping back and we're trying to learn from this prophetic word that is being spoken to the churches. And I think for us, among other things we can learn from Pergamum is be careful about our commitment to America and the American dream. At times that will be in conflict with the call of God. Let's make sure that that commitment isn't causing us to compromise someplace else. You've heard me speak, you know, I went to Texas A&M, I was there six and a half years, got two degrees, and I graduated, and I went on staff with Campus Crusade, and in the course of being in graduate school, living off campus, I met a couple of families, uh, one in particular that was, uh, they were donors of mine, and they gave, well, I worked with Campus Crusade, so in the summers, I would go back and visit. So this is about three or four years after I'm done, I'm visiting with this family, and their kids are now in college. And the son is a sophomore, and he is all in. He's all in on Texas A&M. And I say, hey, have you gotten involved in church? Have you gotten involved with the campus ministry? No, I haven't done that, but I've done this and this and this at A&M. And then he says to me, Andy, being a good Aggie is just like being a good Christian. And I said, well, there's some things A&M does well. But I've got to tell you that there's some things about being a good Aggie that are in conflict with being a good Christian. I was there six and a half years, I know. Um, What's my point? Love of anything, particularly civic, city, state, university, can lead us away from God. He needs to be our priority. Look, we started asking this question, what are Jesus' expectations of us? All three churches said you need to overcome. That, says, that means it's not being taken away. You, you've got to overcome it. In Smyrna, he said, you're going to be put in prison, and you're going to face death. That's not unique to them. What Jesus says is that persecution is a reality, and what I'm holding out there is me. When do we get out? No, 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 out. Me. So we ask this question, what are Jesus' 
expectations of us. Here's what I say. In spite of persecution, despite persecution, Jesus empowers us to remain faithful to him. In the face of persecution, Jesus empowers us to remain faithful to him. This isn't a book about an out. It's about the sufficiency of Jesus. And you say, man, you have got to be kidding me. Jesus is what you're putting forth in the face of persecution? Yes. Jesus is what I'm putting forth. And my word to you is he more than you'd imagine. So we moved here um, almost 20 years ago, 19 and a half years ago. Our kids were three and a half and nine months. I hired on at Lincoln Berean. And so they bought us as a welcome to the team, welcome to the city, uh, a year's pass to the Children's Museum and the Lincoln Zoo. And with that, you also got at that time, it was free entrance into the Omaha Zoo that was later 50% for a number of years. It was free. And we thought, man, the, the Lincoln Zoo and the Children's Museum, I mean, we were regulars, regulars there. But people said, man, you ought to do the Omaha Zoo. It is world class. Come on. World class. Come on. You know, it's a ways away. Do we think we want? Okay, well, we'll give it a shot. We stepped into the Desert Dome to start, and we thought, oh. Then we went to the aquarium, and we thought, oh, this is more than we expected. About three years after that, we went to visit my folks down in Orlando. We went to SeaWorld at, at Disney, and it was kind of like, yeah, that was okay. What happened? The Omaha Zoo took the edge off that. That's what happened. The aquarium, had, it was way more than we expected. I want to tell you, Jesus is way more than you would expect way more than you could imagine. Andy, could you tell me about that? Okay, I'll give me two or three examples. So I go to undergrad, graduate school, and then I come home and tell my dad I'm going to go to work with Campus Crusade. He was not happy. That was a question of allegiance. He didn't approve of my decision for 15 years. He didn't approve of my working with them. He had hoped I would be successful in business, kind of like he wished he would have been. That cost me the approval. Well, you follow Jesus, what what you get out of that? Let me tell you what I got. I got a new understanding of relationship. God gave me first himself, but then he gave me a bunch of people, and particularly guys who were intentional about getting to know me. And I experienced unconditional love to the point when I was in graduate school, thinking, I, I want to work with these guys. I'm willing to raise support to do it. And so for the next 15 years, that's what I did. I, I met guys, and I, I intentionally got to know them. That wasn't modeled to me. That's something I learned in following God. So we got married. We had two kids. In the process of having those kids, they turned out to be two sons. So I thought, you know, this is what's been modeled to me. So when they were little, I mean, we started with Happy Meals, and, and we just worked our way up. I'm, I'm going to have a time where I go intentionally meet with my sons. i got to tell you, that happened this week. One for lunch, one for dinner. Highlight of my week. I think I'm so far ahead in my relationship with my sons than I, what my dad was with me. I didn't get that from my dad. I got that from following Jesus. Jesus is more than you would imagine. I have talked about parents. You have a hard decision if your kid is involved in sports because it is an all-out commitment. 
When you get serious about your allegiance, it may cost your kid a practice and a spot on the team, and, 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 and he may not practice, and he may not start, and he may not this, and why on earth would I do that? Here's my observation when parents go all in. The kids learn their value and their worth is in their sport. You know what happens in high school for most, about 99%? They're done. A few go on to Division One, and they're done. At some point, your child needs to learn his or her worth is not in his sport. I mentioned my son two years ago. We watched uh, The Last Dance. It's a story of Michael Jordan and the, the Chicago Bulls in the last run. And I would argue for 10 or 15 years, however you count it, Jordan was on top of the world. But you know what? He got old. And I still think he's dealing with the fact that he's not the man anymore. It's gone on to Kobe and LeBron, and I don't know who it is. Sometime your child needs to learn his worth is, her worth is not in her performance, in her sports, in her academics, in her music. In her, here's an opportunity. As you step into Jesus, and you may be persecuted, you may lose a spot on the team. Some of you think, Andy, you know, I, I get serious about what you're talking about. It's going to cost me in my job. There's a promotion that's not happening. The culture is 70 hours a week. The culture is you bill for hours that don't happen. I, I don't buy into that, and, and I'm, I'm going to get demoted. I could be let go. And here's the fact of the matter. You're a slave to your job right now. You're scared to death. You might get fired. You're not sleeping at night because of that. And maybe ste stepping into Jesus is going to teach you once and for all that, that that boss is not your provider. That company is not your provider. God is your provider. Jesus is sufficient for whatever we face. He's more. He's way more than you or I would imagine if we will but step into Him. And the persecution is an invite, invitation to do that. What's Jesus' expectation? Despite persecution, Jesus empowers us to remain faithful to Him. We want to move to a time of communion now. We're going to celebrate this Jesus. And we talk about Him empowering us and being personal and relevant and, and being worth the cost. None of this happens if He doesn't give Himself on the cross. And so, what is going on here? This is a memorial. This is a remembering. This is a solemn time. We don't become, believe it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. We don't believe there's an extra measure of grace. But we do want to recall the one who made this possible. Now, you don't have to be a member of North Point Community Church. We just ask that you be a follower of Jesus. If you're not sure what that means, please feel free to watch. No need to be embarrassed. But we want to remember, reflect on this one who died for us. And so, in his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talked about this. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I invite you to take this wafer and eat in remembrance of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we do remember you. And, and we talk about churches suffering, but, but you led the way. You suffered first. And you promised that you would rise again, and you did, and, and you offer the payment for sin, and you be, are the one. Just as the Father redeemed your death, so you redeem our suffering. Thank you, Jesus, that you can be trusted, and you have shown, as you said in these, to these churches, you are the first and the last. You are the firstborn from the dead. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the one with the keys. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Paul continued writing about this in verse 25. He says, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you to take and to drink. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your blood was shed, that we could be cleansed, we could be washed from our sin. Lord, in talked about a, a white stone with a name written on it, a, a new status. None of that status, none of that happens if you don't first give yourself on the cross. You talk to all three churches about overcoming. You're serious about that. About us overcoming because you first overcame death. We remember you, Jesus. We celebrate you. It's your name we pray. Amen.